Sitting in a box undigified Gonna rewind and give them one more try Think about the days of lo-fi Mixtape Memorex and TDK Getting music out there the old-fashioned way Making the greatest hits of one day Mixtape Phonograph and dual cassette Before you could get everything on the internet But some things ain't made it there yet Mixtape Line in, line out if you don't have a line Hold the recorder to the speaker, turn the volume to nine Here's an accidental slice of time Welcome to Gen X Mixtape, a nostalgic podcast dedicated to the art of making mixtapes and the Gen Xers who made them. This is side A of a prostitution mixtape, where we curate a collection of songs about the world's oldest profession. And welcome to 2024. How was your new year? Good. You know, I mean, I don't know. At our age, it doesn't <laughs> sound like it used to be. Nah. My wife went to bed at like 1030. Oh, really? Um, I was watching a movie till like five till midnight. So I turned on Dick Clark as, you know, for tradition. And my son came down and we watched the ball drop. And then he went to bed and I continued watching my movie. Isn't <laughs> that right? Yeah, I had, I finally, I just sat down with my wife and we finally watched Barbie. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, we watched that about a week ago. Yeah, so. so finally watched Barbie. That was my New Year's Eve. And the fire, we heard firework, fireworks going off and kind of deduced that it was midnight, but we were about a third of the way through the film and just let it keep rolling. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's been a long while since there's been a, a big to-do for New Year's Eve for us. Last one might have been Y2K, honestly, when the lights turned out, thanks to our friend. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. We had a little <laughs> prank where a buddy of ours went down to the basement and pulled the, the breaker box right when the clock hit on Y2K. Temporarily, everybody at the party thought we had shut down as a society. Yep. But that was fun. Well, yeah, and so I did, I did, I'll admit, I suggested this topic. It's something that I've always thought about, even, you know, probably back 30 years ago. How many songs there are about prostitutes? And I remember thinking at the time, boy, if I ever, you know, wanted to make a bunch of different mixtapes, this would be a perfect mixtape to make just because there is so much to say about this topic. So I thought, well, now we have a podcast that's about making mixtapes. Why not try it? Absolutely. And uh, I wasn't wrong. There were plenty of songs to pick from. Oh, yeah. The songs that I selected, I'm, I'm really happy with, but... I had so many that I had to let go. I mean, you're right. There are just so many songs about this topic, and 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 rightfully so. I mean, I you know, it's sex workers are just a part of you know, really our our collective um, civilization. Well, they call it the world's oldest, oldest profession, profession for a reason, right? Absolutely. Um, uh, yeah, it's, just, it's it's rich fodder for songwriters for, for different reasons, and that's what I'm looking forward to exploring. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, discussing our picks and how they, really how they speak to the human condition. Yeah. Nope, I agree. It's going to be an interesting uh, and very atmospheric Yes, I did episode. notice that. Uh, I think this mixtape and a mixtape of nighttime driving music will be very, very similar. Uh, yeah. Um, a lot of these songs really try to capture the night, which makes sense. That's the setting for most of these. So just kind of an airy, kind of gritty inner city vibe to it. Yeah. Now, I mean, we do have some 
hard rock and staples. But yeah, overwhelmingly, it's very... The songs that we've, we've brought, they're very low-key, very mellow, very moody, um, even a bit jazzy, which is, you know, kind of nice. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to this one. All right, well, you want to get started? Absolutely. Okay. In 1980, British heavy metal masters Iron Maiden launched onto the music scene with their first full-length studio album. Most of the songs on their eponymously titled debut... Um, had been played by the band in the previous several years during their endless series of small gigs at various clubs and pubs around London. So for this reason, the album contains a wide range of material that is not really unified into any specific theme or style. Uh, the sound is also a bit different from the later albums to which most Maiden fans are accustomed. But after several listens, their unique power and depth begin to sink in. This is particularly astonishing because although Will Malone was officially the producer for the album, he never contributed much, and the album production was mostly done by the band and the recording engineer. So although the production is a bit primitive, the album virtually explodes with raw energy and a take-no-prisoners attitude. Several of these tracks have become mating classics, and among them is my first pick for today. Titled Charlotte the Harlot, it was the first of four tracks that Maiden fans refer to as the Charlotte Saga, a series of songs about a woman named Charlotte who left her lover to become a prostitute. Her story continues in 22 Acacia Avenue from Number of the Beast, Hooks in You from No Prayer for the Dying, and From Here to Eternity from Fear of the Dark. The questions, who was Charlotte the Harlot, did she really exist, have been asked time and again to the Maiden Boys, but no clear answer ever passed their lips. Uh, only when the question was popped by Sean Silva of Battlehelm.com to Paul Diano a few years ago did fans get some idea about who she might have been. And here's what Paul Diano, a few uh, few years ago in that interview, had to say. He said, yep, it's true. Her real name is High Hill Lil, and she was an older prostitute. Well, actually, he said she was more of a slut. If you turned up to her house with some booze or some speed, you were more or less guaranteed a lay. She was a legend in Waltham style. Uh, everyone knew her. She was about 45, but a real looker. And she would take any guy from 15 upwards. The song says that she lived on Acacia Avenue, but it was actually Markhouse Road, just before you go into Leighton, because that's the area where I lived. So he completely outed her <laughs> in his uh, interview. Charlotte the Harlot, um, you know, the song, it, it has one of the most complex and unusual riffs in the Maiden back catalog. It's a bit of a workout as it zigzags between notes. But what really gives listeners a rush of adrenaline is how the song begins to ramp back up following the slower bit. 
After a frenzied solo or two, the song lets up for a mere couple of seconds before launching back into that awesome riff. And it's that moment as the riff fires back up that encourages listeners to fist pump and headbang. As a final aside, personally, I just like how it is bookended by the same guitar solo. So I'm not, I'm not a huge metal fan, but I've always respected and, and rather enjoyed Iron Maiden. Yeah, yeah. I think I mentioned on the uh, podcast before, my son was a metalhead for some time when he was a teenager. Still kind of is a little bit, but he's branched out in his musical tastes. But yeah, I, I took him to see Iron Maiden, um, and, and one of his buddies uh, went with us. It's probably been about five or six years now. And uh, I enjoyed myself. Yeah, you know, and it's, I mean, metal today, you know, for my years, are really, really extreme, like the screamo and the you know, just really over-the-top, almost Spinal Tap-ish <laughs> type stuff that's out today. And again, I'm not knocking it because I know some people that like it a lot and I can see its place, but um, but really Iron Maiden doesn't really sound like uh, <laughs> really really that um, that extreme anymore. No. Uh, it sounds just all. like classic rock with an edge. That, that's it. Really good stuff. And, you know, my son always, um, you know, as, as a former English teacher and now a media specialist librarian, my son is always trying to sell me on, on metal lyrics and how many um, bands, metal bands, are just really into history mm. and, uh, and, and and literature. And so like Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner and oh, yeah. a lot of other literary ties that uh, that Iron Maiden, Iron Maiden has in their music. So he's he, he sold me on them. I still haven't really explored the whole catalog and kind of um, gotten into uh, fandom yet, but I really respect what they do. Yeah, well, the song that got me hooked, actually, and it was... Uh Someone in college who who introduced them to me. It was Run to the Hills. Oh yeah, yeah. And that one, I it just kind of blew me away. You know, I mean, it, it's it's so I, the the historical um, accuracy and just the, the the sympathetic you know point being made in in, in the music. I, I wasn't expecting that from metal. Right. You know, right. I, I for whatever reason I. I don't know. I had a very shallow view of what, or, or a very ignorant view of what metal would sound like. So that song kind of it, it drew me in, and, and in the years since, I've I've become a, a bit of a fan. Yeah, so. yeah. I mean, metal really is it's kind of a combination of of, of classical and progressive music. Oh yeah. Um, with 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 a lot of edge and distortion, and um, just the that's the thing that's somewhat ironic, right? I mean, a lot of people feel like metal is kind of like punk music. It doesn't take a lot of talent. It's the exact opposite. Yeah. In fact, I'm convinced that, that youth um, are divided into two camps. Those that have musical talent become metalheads, <laughs> metal musicians, and those that can't become punk musicians. Um, both are valid. It's just a different kind of music. But when you really listen to metal, um, just the amount of stuff that's going on the musicianship is incredible there's a reason why on Guitar Hero all the hardest songs were metal songs oh yeah and then like I said just the lyrical content very cerebral most of the time so mm -hmm. yeah well, Metallica I've always loved Metallica so I mean it's you know they're they're kind of the bar for me but um, you're absolutely right it's it, that that was the perfect explanation progressive and classical yeah so. I don't know I've, I've always seen it that way just because of the movements and all the, uh, it, you know, I mean, classical in itself is, is, is somewhat progressive in the way it's structured. Or progressive is like classical, I guess. Um, when you listen to, to Rush or Old Genesis or King Crimson, you know, yeah. just, definitely. And that's the stuff I think we always enjoyed growing up with, with more of the kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for, more traditional music that had songs that had kind of a progressive bent to them um, in, in the sense that they, did, they broke the mold of that three-minute pop song. Mm -hmm. Right, Billy Joel's scenes from a Italian restaurant. It's a classical classic for a reason. Jungle Land 
from Bruce Springsteen. You know, these are progressive pieces that have different movements and just kind of break that mold. So I think yeah. we've always been drawn to that. Yep, yeah, absolutely. All right, well, I'm going to just start with the most obvious one. People listening, I'm sure, <laughs> expected this one. We're going to go with Roxanne uh, <laughs> by the police from 1978. by the prostitutes that hung around the band CD Hotel when they were staying in Paris um, the song actually kind of takes its title from the classic Cyrano de Bergerac yep. where the Roxanne comes from and you know sometimes I'm sure this happens a lot the success or failure of a band is determined by a single song right often that single song becomes huge and allows the artist to break into the music industry and they end up presenting that song because everybody you know I'm sure Billy Joel hates playing piano, man. I don't know if he's ever admitted that, but sure, that's the song that got him in, and that's the song now he's forced to play and, and end every concert with. So um, I'm sure it's a double-edged sword, but, you know, sometimes that first song is the one that really defines the band or, or, or finds their success or, or not. And this was the one for the police. Um, in fact, when Sting, who wrote the song, he felt it was kind of a throwaway because the police, they were trying to be part of that punk movement and they were looking for really fast, aggressive music. This didn't fit that mold. So he kind of pocketed it, but drummer Stuart Copeland uh, heard the, the demo, kind of played around with the rhythm and then played it for his brother, Miles. And despite being interested in that fast punk that was taking over the UK at the time, Miles really dug the song so much that at that point he agreed to be the band's manager and he had some connections and he eventually secured a record deal with AM and AM, A&M Records. So this was that, that song. Sometimes the one you think is a throwaway turns out to be the big hit. Um, since then, the song has received numerous accolades and places on best songs of all time lists. Um, the song also has been inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. Parts of uh, Roxanne can be heard sampled in hip-hop songs, uh, like in Baz uh, Luhrmann's uh, Moulin Rouge mm -hmm. was included in that. Yep. Um, and finally, who can forget Eddie Murphy's rendition of the song from the buddy cop film <laughs> 48, 48 Hours? hours. Yep. Right, right. So what do you think? Are you a fan of this song? Or? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I um, And then, actually, it's it, it's not my favorite song by the police by any stretch, but, I mean, it it is the song that defined them. It's their signature tune. That or Every Breath You Take. One right, or which the that's other. their masterpiece. Right. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah, no, I'm, I'm I'm so glad you brought up the whole Roxanne thing. Yeah, Sting, uh, when he was in Paris, not only was he watching, you know, the prostitutes, but it, it was a poster for a play 
of Sereno mm-hmm. that was, yes, that yes, was yes, going yes, to be yeah. performed. Yep. Um, also, the intro to this song is really interesting, too, because it's one of those happy accidents <laughs> yeah, in music. When he, Sting, doesn't he land on the keyboard? Yeah, or, or yeah, piano? yeah. There was an upright piano in the studio, and Sting sat on it thinking the lid was closed. And, you know, the tape was rolling for his vocal. And so the sound of his butt hitting the piano and his subsequent laughter, it's right there in the, the opening of the song. That takes a lot of um, lot of, of guts to leave a mistake in the, the very first song. If you consider this is the song you're going to um, show to the world, you want to be as professional as possible. Oh, yeah. Um, so that's interesting. That says a lot about the band that they kept that in. Uh so no, it's a great choice. You can't you can't do a, a mixtape on prostitution without Roxanne. Right. So. No, very good. All right, my next one. Um, this one is from 1984. Uh, it is by Bon Jovi. It is titled "Runaway." Runaway was the first hit for Bon Jovi. Um, he wrote it in 1982 with his early collaborator, George Carrick, and it gained popularity in the band's home state of New Jersey. Despite the success of the song, the band continued to struggle, though. Uh, they were a popular live act, but really, Bon Jovi didn't make any real money until they released their Slippery When Wet album two years later. Runaway tells the story of a young girl who gets so little attention from her parents that she runs away from home and lives on the streets, doing whatever is necessary to survive. Bon Jovi, as it turns out, he would often take a Greyhound bus from Jersey into Manhattan. And it was on the bus that he saw so many young people trying to get away in desperation. And it was these lost faces that inspired the song. John Bon Jovi recorded Runaway with studio musicians because he didn't have a band yet. On guitar was Tim Pierce, uh, whose work can be heard on albums by Rod Stewart, Demi Lovato, Joe Cocker, many others. The keys were manned by East Street band member Roy Bitton. Oh, didn't know that. Uh, and Frankie LaRocca of the band Scandal was on drums. On bass was Hugh McDonald, who played on Bon Jovi's early albums. He actually returned in 94 to replace Alec John uh, such as, as Bon Jovi's bass player, though he was never considered an official member of the band when Runaway was recorded. Bon Jovi... What about sent, Richie Sambora? That didn't come at that point? Uh, no, Richie Sambora uh, came came after. Okay. Yeah. Um, Different album, or was this just a lead single 
And the, then later, this the success of the single led to the album being formed in, well, the, or in the band. As I understand it, I believe that they re-recorded it. Okay, okay. Yeah, because here, I mean, Bon Jovi, he sent the... De- this was just a demo. Gotcha, this is a demo. Yeah, okay. He, he sent the cassette of the song to every record label and manager he could think of, but he got no response. Even after so, his performance on the R2-D2 Christmas even, song? Even after... <laughs> I would think that's the top of the resume. Even right after there. Christmas in the Stars, yes. Um <laughs> Enter WAPP, uh, 103.5 FM. It was a fledgling radio station in Patterson, New Jersey. Uh, purchased by Doubleday Broadcasting in 82, the station featured an AOR format, and as a stunt, it ran commercial-free in the summertime. At the time, Bon Jovi had completed the demo of his song. The station was still so young, it didn't even have a receptionist. So one day, John Bon Jovi walked right in, right into the, the studio, no less, and pleaded his case to DJ Chip Hobart and promotion director John Lassman. They played the song and included it in their homegrown compilation album of local bands. And listener response proved overwhelmingly positive. Um, so John actually was hired to write jingles for the young radio station. Sure. Uh, soon after, bigger radio station, w- WDHA, also put the song on their compilation album of unsigned acts, which finally got the band some attention. Uh, Derek Shulman who led the prog rock band Gentle Giant before taking a job at Mercury Records, he signed the band. And according to Shulman, it wasn't the song that led him to sign the band, but the potential of marketing and promotion. Because he he said he knew that these guys were driven to succeed and had a great story. So Dave Sabo played guitar when John Bon Jovi toured to showcase the song. But he was replaced by Richie Sambora before the album was released. Uh, Sabo went on to form Skid Row though. Oh. And when they released their debut album in 89, Bon Jovi brought them on tour. Um, I've always liked Runaway. I think it is probably when we talked before. Uh, I know you're not a fan of Bon Jovi necessarily because you said they're they're too polished. It's too... Yeah, well I just think like all the songs on, on uh, what's Slippery When Wet yeah. would have been better served with all the 80s production. But the songs are good. Yeah, but, but Runaway is a great example of that because it is so glossy and it's so... It, it it is a very commercially you know produced yeah song it, yeah it's um, a hard rock song meant to be a, a hit single yeah um, but it is anthemic you know and and it, it's it's become a, a long long favorite of, of Bon Jovi fans it still makes its way into most of his set lists so um, well it, you know it had pop appeal it had radio appeal I remember when it was played on Q ninety two right here locally which. Um, it was kind of a surprise because we had the Galaxy nightclub. Of course, we were way too young to be going at the nightclubs. But I remember seeing television commercials for Bon Jovi playing at the Galaxy. And, and, and this was in the Myers Lake Shopping Plaza, yeah. right? <laughs> you couldn't get any less glamorous than this. Brian Adams also played uh, yeah, at the I, Galaxy. I remember when Brian Adams So it came was on through. the circuit for these up-and-coming um, pop artists. Uh, but yeah, we, we were too young. Although I've talked to people that were at that show, or at least they claim to have been at that show. Hmm. Yeah, I... I never even got to see what the galaxy looked like. I mean, no, I, I didn't. No, it, it was closed. Before it was closed we were, before we were of age. Were even, before we were even sixteen, and would right. have tried to have uh, you know snuck in. Yeah, that's okay. We still had you know all the the bars in Coventry, oh, in well, Cleveland. Yeah. Well, so, <laughs> but uh, that's it. Bon Jovi, uh, Runaway, my second pick. We didn't even need bars from Cleveland. We had Thirtieth uh, Street. Uh, Oh, yeah. A little pizza joint. I won't mention the name. <laughs> 30 years ago, uh, there was a certain, you know, 
worker proprietor that didn't mind serving a couple of high school kids on the way home from school. That's true. Those the days. There's also a drive-through that we would frequent. It helped when you looked. <laughs> yeah. When you looked uh, to be forty Getting years old. For a few days. Yeah. So. Uh, All right. I'm up. Yep. Okay. Well, here's another classic that most people know. Uh, although a lot of people may not know that it's actually about prostitution, and that is Mama by Genesis. Singles chart differently in various countries. In fact, some bands release different album tracks of singles in different markets based on that region's tastes. I remember The Cure when they released Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me. We had Why Can't I Be You as the single. Um, in Britain, the single was Catch, which I thought was the better song. Hmm. It was never released in the United States. So it's all marketing. So Mama by Genesis, was the, it's the first song on the album, and it was the first single off the band's self-titled release. Uh, but in the United States, it did not come close to the top four and 40. Um, reached only number 73. But despite that, in the UK, the song went all the way to number four and remains the highest charting single of the band's career in England. 
So they never had a number one song. Four was their highest. That kind of surprises me a little bit. A little bit, yeah. Um, and that Mama um, is their, in fact, it was a huge, I guess, selling single. But, single. but um, yeah, only to go to number four. Just a little surprising. Um, Genesis guitarist Mike Rutherford composed the heavy drum machine that introduces the song, uh, laying the foundation for the minimalist keyboard parts and Phil Collins' haunting vocals. Um, his disturbing laugh, by the way, do you know who inspired that? Uh, what inspired it? Or what inspired it? Who inspired it? I don't know. It, it is so sinister. Grandmaster Flash's performance on the message. Once you really, once you hear it, you know. Yes, it's Grandmaster Flash. Yeah, he does the same. Ha 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 ha. And so oh, you know Phil what? took that and I've I've never made that connection. Yeah, never. Yeah. So yes, the song is about a prostitute, despite some different interpretations to the contrary. Um, the manager initially thought the song was about an abortion yeah. from the perspective of the fetus. I guess you could read into that. Um, it's there, yeah. <laughs> others took the lyrics to uh, lyrically telling the story of a dysfunctional mother-song dynamic, which I think is probably the most common interpretation. Um, but Phil confirmed the song is actually from the perspective of a young man who is obsessed with an older prostitute, and he doesn't understand why she isn't interested in a relationship with him. Um, this has always resided in my top ten. For all of Genesis songs, in fact, I think they didn't they play it live when we saw them. We they finally did. got a chance to see Genesis. Yeah, they did. It's so sinister and so disconcerting, proving that even the pop centric Collins led version of Genesis in the eighties still wasn't afraid to serve up the unconventional and stand by it. Yeah, well, and and the song the song is just it's kind of unnerving. I mean, you you had the whole Oedipal fixation, you know, on on the prostitute. I guess it was actually based on a book. That Phil Collins was reading. Oh, okay. I, I saw that uh, just recently. I mean, the book was titled "The Moon's a Balloon" hmm. by, by David Niven. Oh, I, David Niven. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know the book, but uh, I, I know Niven, but I don't know the book. Right. Um, but yeah, it's it's just the song kind of creeped me out. Uh, you know, when I was younger, because that laugh. Is well, I saw just, the video for. Did you see the video on MTV? That's the first time I heard the song. You know, the I video don't, is very. I don't know too. if I've ever seen the video for this. Yeah. If I remember correctly, it's been 30 years since I've seen it, but Phil's, you know, Phil was into his face. All of his album All covers. All the time, yeah. You know, it's yeah. his face. And so this is 83, so face value. There you go, face again. Uh, his first solo album had been released already. In fact, I think he'd released his second, uh, Hello Must Be Going by this point. Um, but yeah, if I remember correctly, it's his kind of face um, projected onto the band, like a superimposed kind of, huh. but it's like a talking head, like a Wizard of Oz-like. So with that laugh and that large face, that's what I remember from 1983 MTV. I'm going to have to look it up on YouTube. I I have no memory of the video, but you are right. He's been staring at something since, you know. (laughs) You saw when he re-released the remasters of the albums, he redid the the covers? No. Did he? With his his current face. (laughs) And if you you go into Spotify uh, or just go to Amazon, you can find both versions. And so like... It includes every single solo album he released. And so you go to Face Value 1981 edition, and then the remaster is Phil's face when he's in his 70s. Is it still the same poses? Everything. But it's just the new... Uh, everything looks exactly the same, except for his face is... That is hilarious. 30, 40 years older. Yeah. That is so funny. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to have to look that up as well. I, <laughs> I had no idea that he had done that. All right. My number three... Uh, this one is going to be obscure. Uh, it's it's definitely a deep cut, a dark horse. Um, it is Sweet Cream Ladies Forward March by the Box Tops. Sweet Cream Ladies Forward March, the world owes you a living. Sweet Cream Ladies, do your part, 
the Backstops, they, they were formed in Memphis, and they were a blue-eyed soul group of the late 60s. They're best remembered today for their recording of Wayne Carson Thompson's song, The Letter. Um, though under two minutes in length, their version of The Letter was an international hit. Uh, it reached number one on the Hot 100. It stayed there for four weeks in September of 67. The Letter sold over four million copies, earning a gold disc and receiving two Grammy Award nominations. Other major hits by the band were Cry Like a Baby, Choo Choo Train, and Soul Deep. But yeah, for today, I'm, I'm pulling a much, much lesser known track. Sweet Cream Ladies Forward March. Um, this one is, is a really daring um, recording, I think, given the time period. Um, first of all, Sweet Cream Lady, it, it's apparently a slang term for a prostitute, which I've never heard anyone use that phrase, but, um, you know, we're also what, uh, 80 years since. Sure, so, yeah. um, but make no mistake. The song is clearly about prostitution. In, in fact, the song approaches the topic in a very favorable, if sympathetic way. I mean, the view is very supportive, uh, of, of what these ladies of the night do. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, given the era from which it comes, I think it's a bit surprising um, that they're so, so pro-prostitution in, in this song. Um, the lyrics, Sweet Cream Ladies Forward March, the world owes you a living. Sweet Cream Ladies do your part, think of what you're giving. To the lost and lonely people of the night, out of need they seek direction for their life. They will love you in the darkness, take advantage of your starkness, and refuse to recognize you in the light. Um, it's actually a really interesting song. And then because originally, you know, same era, I was going to go with House of the Rising Sun by, by the uh, animals. It's, it's another prostitution song, although very vague. But this one is so clear. It's so direct in its message that I just thought, well, whether or not our listeners know it, it it's, I think, a, a much better choice for, for the episode. Um, Sweet Cream Ladies Forward March, it was the first single released from their Dimensions album. Uh, Dimensions was the last Box Tops studio album. They weren't around very long, but um, you said you'd never heard it. What'd you well, think all of I can it? think of is it's Box Tops for Education. <laughs> uh, our listeners, Gen X listeners, probably remember. Um, well, I don't know. Was it our generation or just as teachers? I remember, at least as a beginning teacher, our schools yep. would save the box tops off the cereal boxes and they could redeem them and the school got points for stuff. Yeah. It's uh, Box Tops uh, it for Education, I think it's still a thing. Okay. Well, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you know the letter, don't you? I don't. You don't? Mm-mm. Uh, buy me a ticket for an airplane. Ain't got I mean, I probably if you played train. it for me, I yeah. probably would have heard it. But. Yeah, yeah. Trust me. Well, we'll play it after after the episode. You've 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 heard it without question. Um, but yeah, it's. I, mean, I have a lot of deep cuts for this two part episode, but this yeah. is this is number one, uh, the first of all of them. So there we go. All right. Well, I don't think we've talked about Bob lately. Bob Dylan. He's always good for, for a selection. Um, this one actually kind of surprising. I, I chose a song from the, the mid-80s. And, and Bob's 80s stuff can be hit or miss. It seems like a lot of artists' 80s stuff can be hit or miss. Very true. And this is an album that sounds very much like 1985. There's one exception. The final track on the record, which sounds very, very timeless Bob Dylan. And that's what I'm going with. It's called Dark Eyes from his 1985 release, Empire Burlesque. Oh, the gentleman. Talking 
the midnight moon is on the riverside They're drinking up and walking And it is time for me to slide I live in another world But life and death are memorized Where the earth is strung with lovers' pearls And all I see are a dark It's a final track, like I mentioned, off that, that, that album. And it's about a prostitute that Dylan passed in the lobby of a New York hotel. Although she looked ragged and appeared to be the victim of physical abuse, Dylan found a sad beauty in her struggle that ultimately doomed her to walk the same lobby time and time again. It's a song about being trapped in what you've become, uh, unable to rise above your circumstances in the world that you live in. Um, the song is widely cited as one of the best recordings of the 80s from Bob Dylan. Um, in fact, Tom Waits said it's his one all-time favorite Dylan songs that's also been covered by the likes of Patti Smith, Judy Collins, uh, P.J. Harvey, Iron and Wine. A ton of people have, have uh, covered this. The poetic lyrics end with the line, a million faces at my feet, but all I see are dark eyes. Much like most of Dylan's work, he leaves much for you as a listener to work out and ponder long after the last note has been sung. Well, that's classic Dylan, yeah. yeah. Um, now, this one, I, I am not well-versed in Dylan's 80s catalog. Well, there's so, probably a reason for that. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's, there, there's some, there are some hidden gems here and there. Yeah. I, and I have nothing against it with him being experimental and trying things. Oh, it no. was just, that was the era. I, I think, well, I, I think the best musicians are experimental, you know, but um, for whatever reason, though, after you get past the, the late 70s, I know very little Bob Dylan music. And so this one, I, I was really kind of surprised because I, I I saw the year and I thought to myself, oh, what is this going to sound like? <laughs> right. And then it sounded like Dylan, yeah. you know, it, yeah. it just, it, I, it kind of blew me away. I've, I really enjoyed the song. I think it's a great addition. So. I think the reason, I think the reason, okay, so this is a theory. We know movies, two-dimensional the standard frame rate that was established was 24 frames per second. Video is 30 frames per second, right? Which is why video always looked a little bit different than film. Yeah. And I remember growing up um, watching some of the local stations that had you know very inexpensive video technology. And it looked cheap. Even though it was actually more frame, the frame rate was higher. It should have looked more realistic, right? But it looked cheap. And then you come out with the televisions in the last 15 years that have that extra oh, frame yeah. rate that, that add frames to it. And really, it, it looks more realistic. It looks more three-dimensional, but it looks cheap because we're used to that sheen of 24 frames per second. It's something that we're used to. Right. And even when Peter Jackson released The Hobbit, um, or The Lord of the Rings, it was The Hobbit with, was, with yeah, the was, extra frame rate. Yeah, it was The Hobbit. And it was kind of like watching a play. It was really eerie, but it didn't feel like a movie. No, not at all. That was that was one of my major grievances. With So I think, well, I was pretty drunk at the time too, but <laughs> I drank too much before seeing that, and then the high frame, it really freaked me out. Um, so I think the same thing might be the case for music. Think about it. Rock and roll came about in a very low-tech time period. In fact, most stuff was recorded live in the studio. Uh, you might have had, you know, four tracks, and there wasn't really a lot of post-production. Right. 
And then as time went on and technology took off, um, in the 70s, there was a nice sweet spot where I think the technology was being used to enhance that sound that we're used to, that really raw sound. But then when the 80s hit, the technology took another leap. And all of a sudden, now we could polish off all the rough edges of the music and we could really just make everything nice and smooth and fit. And I think it's like that high frame rate. The 80s production was technically superior but it lost everything from those early recordings of rock and roll that we're used to hearing, kind of like the old 24 frames per second. And so I think they learned in the last, latter half of the 80s especially, maybe grunge was a part of this movement, right? Um, it's not about being polished. you know. Yeah, you want a good recording of the sound uh, of the song, but there's also something to be said for that, that low-tech sound. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I mean, just... When you when you throw in auto tune and you start with you know the just that that horrible I, I I have nothing against a drum machine but when you so many of the pop songs just have that that very tinny right metal you know yeah not 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 metal like Maiden, but yeah it's very it's, it's yeah it's very tinny it's very it just it kind of it's dead on arrival right. you know it, it's well when mike rutherford composes a drum track for genesis it sounds a little bit different than oh right the way yeah. especially the way it was used i think now i think all the i think they pretty much solved the problem now but in the 80s it just i think at the time sounded so fresh and so clean and everybody kind of jumped on that bandwagon and dylan was was no different in in that right um so it was nice that it, it seems like unless this is something that he recorded you know a long time prior to this and this threw it under the album I don't know um, I think he may have recognized that to some extent and he was okay with experimenting with the new stuff but he also realized there was nothing wrong with the old way yeah. the things were recorded I think the synthesizer had a lot to do with that as well oh yeah um, of course you had the Moog synthesizer in the 70s and, and that I think has aged fairly well depending on how it's used some songs obviously didn't use it very well and it sounds very dated some songs never should have been so, yes. recorded <laughs> but I think once but, once the computerized um, synthesizer came out and you could sample again I think people kind of took it a little bit too far and ran with it to the point where it gives that kind of artificial well I, let me say it this way the new way you did it right because they were taking this new medium this medium and they were really exploring it when the older artists decided to try and incorporate with their music that's when it sounded really really yeah. bad and like it, Chicago. Chicago, you know, it's a 60s jazz fusion band. Right. And the 80s, when, when David Foster puts them into this, you know, nice plastic bubble, yeah, it made a lot of money, but it's not Chicago. Yeah. No, they they lost pretty much everything. Well, and they gave so much power to Satira that, you know, Peter Satira hated, hated the brass section. Yeah. Hated horns, which, you know, again, Chicago was... That, that was their bread and butter. Right. I mean, Chicago was a brass jazz fusion band. And it's, yeah, but it became so, so saccharine, you know, and, and very, very superficial. It just doesn't sound. Look look at Billy Joel, um, Running on Ice and oh, yeah. Modern Woman and, and some of those songs that drew sound dated. But on the same record on the bridge, which is 86, I believe, you have like, you know, Matter of Trust, which is definitely 80s, but. I don't know. It just didn't seem as polished as some of the other songs on yeah, there. Yeah, agreed. Um, Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA. I tell you what, probably his most fertile time in his writing career was in the early 80s. And he produced so much music and so much of it, <clears throat> I, 
is a little overproduced with 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 the keyboard. Yeah, you're you're thinking dancing in the dark. Yeah, yeah, and I love dancing in the dark, and I wouldn't change a thing about it. But it is a product of its time. It is. It's dated. Yeah. Um, also, still to this day, as biggest hit. So you know, there's yeah, there's yeah. that. Right, yeah. uh, the eighties. What what you gonna? But again, do? I'd love to hear a stripped down version of Born in the USA. And some of the songs, obviously, he has played. Oh yeah. Live stripped down. So we get it. Like, Dance in the dark is one of those. Yeah. He plays a very slow acoustic version of it. All right, you're up. All right, well, this is another uh, deep cut. Um, it is an obscure track that, uh, that again, I think a lot of our listeners may not know. It's from Blondie's eponymous 1976 debut. It is titled Ex Offender. I saw you standing on the corner. You look so big and fine. I really wanted to go out with you. So when you smiled, I laid my heart on the line. Offender is actually it's one of two songs about prostitution by the band. Um, call me, call me, yeah. yeah. Blonde, Blondie has not one; they have two, and and the better known is "Call Me," yeah, it, which was the theme song to American Gigolo, a movie about, of course, prostitution. Richard Gere, Richard Gere, yeah. absolutely. Um, "Call Me" was the most successful of all of Blondie's singles here in the states. It reached number one on the Hot 100. Really, over the tide is high. Oh yeah, I thought that was their mega hit. No, no, no. Uh, "Call Me" it, it reached number one on the Hot 100. Stayed there for six consecutive weeks. It was the best-selling single of 1980, and the band's biggest hit. It was their second number one. Um, but but four years earlier on uh, on the band's eponymous debut, yeah, Debbie Harry and Company released "Ex Offender." So. Ex Offender, I I love this song. It's not a great song, but but it it is so heavily inspired by sixties girl group the Shanghai Laws. Mm, yeah, um, it begins with a spoken word intro before exploding into a magnificently retro nineteen sixties amalgamation of surf rock, drum beats, and rockabilly guitar. So I mean, it's it's right there in my you know my wheelhouse. Uh, the female character of the song is arrested. But she and the cop both know that he wants her. And the song ends with the line, and when I get out, there's no doubt, I'll be sex offensive to you. Um, The song was originally written by Blondie bassist Gary Valentine, though. At 17 years old, he got his underage girlfriend pregnant, and he was given a statutory rape charge as a result. He penned a song titled Sex Offender about the experience, 
props to Debbie Harry. <laughs> Took out the SE. Yeah, props to Debbie Harry because uh, she wisely changed the lyrics to tell the story about a prostitute falling in love with the police officer who arrested her, um, which I think is far more accessible. Um, or, or at least it's not going to be as... Uh, uncomfortable to, to listen to is a statutory rape charge but um yeah no i i just really i love the retro feel of this one and it's so unlike anything else that i've brought with me today um well and that, that's why i think pop, punk music to some aspect should appeal to you because so much of the 70s new york punk was mm-hmm. based on the bubblegum music of the 50s and 60s oh, yeah. so the ramones obviously deborah harry so Yep. You definitely have that. And of course, that's when the nostalgia also began to hit the 70s nostalgia and Happy Days and all the 50s recordings, American Graffiti. It's very true. Yeah. You know what kind of surprised me? Because it's usually a 20 to 30 year mm-hmm. um, retro, you know, um, obsession that, sure. we, that we have. Um, because, you know, it well, usually 20. Honestly, it's been 20. Yeah. Although now it seems 30. The 90s seem to be what's kind of popular now. Well, to a degree, but the 80s still has such a stronghold. Yeah, it does. And I, I think it, and that's a testament to the, to the time. Well, the 80s is kind of like the 50s. Even though the 50s, you know, rebirth or whatever, the Renaissance was in the late 70s. Even in the 80s and 90s, you had movies made about the 50s. Oh, yeah. Peggy Sue Got Married, and um, I'm trying to think. There, you know, there, there are a oh, bunch of them. So many. I yeah. mean, Grease obviously was a big one in the late 70s, but many would follow. And I think we're always kind of, back to the future, right? We're always kind of obsessed with um, the 50s because it kind of represents something. Many ways, false, but, you know, right. a nostalgic ideal. I think the, 80s, the 80s is the next version of that, right? Yeah, no, um, I agree. Because the 70s, think about the late 70s, we had some, some rough patches. Um, economy wasn't doing so great. Um, inflation, you know, lines at the gas pump. And so the music of the, of the late 50s and early 60s brought us back to a simpler time. Now we find ourselves in crisis again, right? Internationally, um, with, you know, here at home domestically with inflation and so forth, which is getting better. But it makes sense then we would want to hearken back to a very prominent time in our childhood in the 80s when the economy was good and the music was simple and fun. It, it makes sense. Yep. No, couldn't couldn't say it better myself. So, All right. My next one um, is a Beatles song. It's been a while since we've talked uh, about yes. the Beatles, haven't we? I'm going with Ticket to Ride by the Beatles from their 1965 release, Help. Bands like the Beach Boys and the Beatles were really, really good at disguising new sounds and song structures in the shell of a pop song. 
right? Um, think good vibrations. God only knows. Yep. Um, warmth of the sun. For the Beatles, think strawberry fields forever, right? These were highly experimental songs that really broke the mold of the three-minute pop song. But they were pretty sneaky because they don't sound like progressive songs. Good Vibrations <clears throat> is a progressive song. Oh, without question. Yeah. But it's in, a, in the shell of a pop song. And that's what was so genius about it because it was very radio-friendly, but new ground was being broken. And I think some people I surprise when I bring up Ticket to Ride. Because to modern ears, the song sounds like it fits perfectly in the Beatles' pop progression. But if you really sit down and pay attention to the layers and what's going on musically in this song, there is a lot going on here. It really is um, one of the songs that kind of highlights the progression of the Beatles. Now, Lennon wrote a majority of the song, um, although McCartney has taken a little more credit <laughs> than Lennon was willing to give. Of course, no surprise there. Everything was, was you know... Lennon McCartney, but rarely um, did they share the writing credits equally on a song. Right. Um, John even said, this is interesting, he said this, he believes that Ticket to Ride was the first heavy metal song due to its heavy sound for the time. Hmm. So if you do go back and listen to some of the guitar distortion, some of the stuff that John's doing on guitar, yeah, I can see that. I can see the through line, you know, if you really want to start from the very beginning. Um, some say Helter Skelter. Well, yeah. Later on the White Hel Album. Helter Skelter is the one that most people, I think, credit. Right. Um, also, the tempo changes um, during key phrases. Um, Ringo's rhythm, you know, Ringo always gets to knock for being a blah drummer, which is totally unfair. Um, Ringo was always right for the song, and sometimes that was a simple drum part. Yeah, oh, yeah. Um, but if you listen to songs like Ticket to Ride, um, he clearly departs from that traditional pop beat of the era. Um, and, and does some interesting stuff on this track. And then, yet the, the end is extremely radio-friendly. Um, that, that's just genius. They were able to do this, to continue to experiment but make the record company and the fans happy, right? Um, kind of a sneaky way to move, move forward. Some bands will just come out with an album that's out of left field, and sometimes it's tough to bring the fans along. Beatles were smart. Um, in fact, uh, it was the seventh consecutive number one in the UK and their third consecutive number one in the United States. Um, to further show the bands, or the song, I should say, uh, Malleability, is that a word, Malleability? It is. Um, the most notable cover version came from The Carpenter. <laughs> right. So here's a song that John Lennon says is the first heavy metal song, and yet when Karen Carpenter takes it, she takes it and makes it her own, right? Um, and that's, that, to me, is a mark of a great song, when multiple artists can take it and, and do something completely different with it. So for her, of course, you have this really smooth 70s, um, style, vocal, of course, Karen Carpenter's voice is unparalleled. Um, and it was their first commercial single. So this would have been probably 69, 70. But they kind of were ahead of the time with that smooth, mellow gold sound before that really hit on. Um, is this song really about a prostitute? Uh -huh. Some people might say, wait a minute, I haven't addressed the elephant in the room. I've never thought this was a song about prostitution. Well, it depends on who you listen to. Well, it depends on whether or not you believe John. Right. <laughs> it, because Paul does not tell the same story. But. Yeah, Paul says it's, it, that it has nothing to do with prostitution. It should be taken literally. Um, he's talking about the, the British railway um, journey to town in the... Um, to the Isle of Wight. Isle of Wight, right. Yeah. right. Uh, Ride. Ride is the name of the town in the Isle of Wight. R-Y-D-E. So ticket to ride, you know, it's kind of a, a play on the word ride. You're right. riding on a train to a town called Ride. So that makes complete sense to me. That and makes it, complete sense. It's the most 
logical explanation, but but John but, refutes this, and I think I think his explanation is equally as good. It, it is, yeah. He explains the prostitutes in Hamburg. Of course, they played in Germany quite a bit before they broke through. Um, that the, the prostitutes had to prove their clean bill of health um, by having a card that shows that they've had their checkup and a British slang for sex is ride. So a prostitution, someone having a ticket to ride, right. means that they have a ticket to have sex and continue in their yeah. trade. And that, that was the phrase they used. Right. I mean, that was what the slang term was for the clean bill of health. They right. had a ticket, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so some listeners conclude that it's about a woman um, leaving her man to become a prostitute. You know, there are different variations, but, uh, and perhaps they're all right in their own way, right? Because all of these meanings can can hit on a different level, which what makes a great song. Yeah. So it wouldn't surprise me if John's intentions were really subversive, and he just never let Paul in on the secret. I, you know, I, it's 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 John. <laughs> <laughs> so I th- there are a few things that make it a little questionable. You know, and for one thing, you know, Hamburg was the Hamburg years were like sixty to sixty two, and Ticket to Ride is a full three years later at sixty five. So to just you know, harken back to that that time period for a random tune. I'm not saying we don't do that; that artists don't recollect right. and and remember. But um, you know, it, it's I don't know. It's it's kind of a thin idea there for me. But the the real thing though is that um, John was never serious during interviews. He was kind of like Kurt Cobain. In oh, that oh way. yeah. I mean, he almost always eschewed matter of fact answers. He was always very playful. He was very uh, sarcastic, and I used a lot of humor. It's just who he was. So not all of John's remarks should be taken literally, you know. So I don't know. I personally, I think it's both. I, I do think I agree with you. I think John very deliberately had some fun with it. I think there was an in joke there that really only he or maybe only the Beatles understood. But when you Put it into that context, though, and then you have Karen Carpenter singing a very tearful ballad version of a song about, you know, yeah. wanting a prostitute. Who, <laughs> right, you know, right. Yeah. It, to me, that's I just, think the Carpenters took the yeah, Paul's, Paul's meaning. Right, yeah. So, I mean, the whole thing is just really comical. Well, it, it kind of reminds me of, and I don't even know if this is a thing, if it's just in my brain, or if this is something people have talked about before. I think I would have looked this up. I don't think I ever have. And I want to hold your hand. I've always thought that there might be some subversion by John in there, too, because on the refrain, I can't hide, I swear one of them says, I get high. I get high, I get high. The other, the other three are singing, I can't hide, but one is singing, I get high, if you listen to it closely. Now, maybe that's just my own, but I, I think the Beatles would do that from time to time. Oh, yeah, and, and I don't know, I, my God, I've heard, I want to hold your hand a, a thousand yeah. times, but... I don't know. That yeah, listen ever, to it and see if see what yeah, you think. Yeah, I'm gonna have to listen. I for should look that. that up too and see if I'm yeah. the only one that's not there. Um, hmm. Yeah, I, without question. And the Beatles actually, they also in their in their catalog, Maggie May, another song about prostitution. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, dirty um, Maggie May. But but uh, yeah, no, take it to ride. I was I was really happy you included that one because it it is. There's so many. There are so many people that just insist that it is in fact a subversive message written by the band. So, right. Yeah. All right. Well, here is yet a third uh, deep cut. I promise, side B, folks, you'll know my songs. <laughs> but this one, um, it is another song 
from another movie about prostitution. I didn't use Call Me by Blondie, but again, it's another prostitution movie. Um, my next selection is titled Night Shift. It's by 80s band Quarterflash. those that may not remember, Night Shift um, was a 1982 run Howard comedy of the same name. It starred Henry Winkler, Michael Keaton, and Shelley Long. That was Ron Howard? That was Ron Howard that directed, yeah. The movie, I think, is largely forgotten today. I remember seeing it on VHS. But it was the film that put Michael Keaton on the map. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, Night Shift was the theme song uh, to that to that film. Quarter Flash, they formed in 1980 in Portland, Oregon by Rindy Ross and her husband, Marv Ross. Rindy fronted the band, not only by lead vocal, she was also the band's saxophonist. Now, we have talked a lot uh, over the years about that compulsory saxophone in 1980s pop yes, music. But right? it was Quarter Flash's signature. It was, yeah. Um, I'm okay with it. Yeah, in fact, in a 1982 interview, Rindy Ross said that she viewed the saxophone as an extension of her voice, enabling her to express things she could not express with her voice alone. And as for the band's name, it actually came from an Australian slang description of new immigrants. Hmm. Um, They used to refer to new immigrants as a quarter flash. Oh, yeah. Three three quarters foolish. Yeah. uh, Which the Rosses found in a book at producer John Boylan's house. Quarter Flash is largely remembered for their 1981 hit, Harden My Heart. Which is a classic. It is. And that single, it peaked at number three on the Hot 100. Many believe the band was a one-hit wonder, but in fact, their next single, Find Another Fool, it actually reached number 16. But that was about it for the band. Um, Though they did appear on the soundtracks of two of 1982's biggest films, Night Shift, of course, they also were, uh, they landed one of their B-sides. It was titled Don't Be Lonely on the Fast Times at Ridgemont High hmm. soundtrack. Yeah. Um, but the group disbanded in 85 after being dropped from their label. Geffen Records dropped and they, they their, their time had come. Um, as for the song Night Shift, the song is, is rather haunting. It's, it's partly about prostitution, which was, you know, a, a major plot point of the film. But it is also inclusive of, of night owls in general. And it refers to what city life is like after the sun goes down. It's a really interesting song. It's, it's kind of catchy. I, mm-hmm. I like no, it. And, it's good. Um, yeah, I, I've always remembered this song. Um, but I, I again, I don't know how many of our listeners are going to be familiar with it. So 
So Night Shift by Ron Howard is different than Night Shift Nurses. Oh, yes. <laughs> which was another film <laughs> I've seen back in the day. All right. Um, my turn? Yep. All right. So this one, uh, this is one of the ones that when I was, you know, whatever, 30 years ago, thinking this would make a great mixtape, here's another one of the songs that I knew I would include. And that is Sweet Painted Ladies by Elton John. Oh, yes. Off the 1973 double album, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. I'm back on dry land once again. Opportunity awaits me like a rat in the drain. Just a short time to show you the tricks that we learn. If the boys all behave themselves here, well, there's pretty young ladies and beer in the rear. You won't need a gutter to sleep in tonight. Oh, the prices, the charges, we'll see you all right. It's a tender ballad about prostitutes working sailors in a harbor town. Uh, it's clearly a deep cut. It's only been played live a handful of times, maybe even only two or three. Um, but it's always been one of my favorites on the record. Um, I like Goodbye Yellowbrick Road because to me, one thing I can somewhat fault Elton John for, especially in early um, Elton John records, a lot of the songs um, seem a little fillerish. Yeah. He had great singles off all of his records, but a lot of the songs, there are some classic deep tracks, deep tracks, don't get me wrong. I mean, there were some non-singles that are great, great songs, but but then there were some that just kind of mm, sat there for me, right? Um, or sounded a lot of like, you know, but Goodbye Yelbick Road, every song to me felt fresh and new and different from the other tracks. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a concept album, but not maybe more in the way of like the White Album is because everything feels that has a central theme you know this idea of walking away from from um you know these ideas these dreams these failed dreams but it's still very very you know eclectic yeah when of course it's the the quote-unquote hollywood album right 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 right, right. um but no and goodbye yellow mccrota is hands down my favorite yeah no it's just it's It's a double album which you know makes it even that much better and it yeah i i don't know that there's a stinker on the album yeah. i mean it's it literally I, I think that was they're all fun yeah i wouldn't say it was his peak commercially but but it was definitely for me it it, it set the bar yeah and oh, yeah. I, I can't think of another out john album that 
Well, comes, I comes think part close. of the reason why some of the D tracks were, were really amiss because he he was so prolific oh, yeah. during the early seventies. He averaged two, and in some cases three albums a year, in addition to touring. Well, you got to credit Bernie too. Oh, yeah, no, yeah, no, no, yeah. no. Of course I do. Yeah. Um, and and writing poetry and writing song lyrics can take a lot of time, no doubt. But then to be able to take those lyrics and craft them into original music. To me, maybe it's because it's a harder task for me. I think would be very, very time consuming. So, um, Elton and Bernie, and, and that wasn't like you say they were a, a team for this album as well. Um, in fact, they played together most of their career. There was a time in the '80s where they where they didn't work together. But um, and, Elton, and you can tell, you can tell. <laughs> yeah, you can tell because the music isn't as good either, and so you can really tell that Bernie's lyrics inspired. Yeah, um, John's music. Um, Elton manages to capture the loneliness and isolation. Um, in, in the, of, of the lyrics here in the simple but somewhat haunting melody. Um, and it's a simple arrangement, um, which includes a subtle accordion, which is nice, and provides this kind of old world feel of a, of a time long ago, right? World War II, maybe, when the sailors come in from right. into harbor. Um, the song, probably not surprising, was controversial for the time. Um, Toppin wisely avoids a tone of scorn um, for one of, 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 of sympathy for the women who have made their, their living in this manner, which I think is a smart choice. Yeah, it's, it's very similar to the uh, Sweet Cream Ladies. Yes, Sweet Cream uh, Ladies, very, in, a lot of similar. In theme, yeah. Who knows, maybe that song inspired this one. Um, even in the 1970s, women had very few choices for supporting themselves without the aid of a man. Uh, in fact, I believe in, in, in this country, even through the 70s, a woman had to have a, her husband's permission to get a credit card. I, I'm pretty sure um, <laughs> even in the 70s we had laws like that. And so think about World War II, World War One. Countless women, like the protagonists of this song, had no choice but to resort to sex work just to stay alive. And Toppin taps into this unfortunate reality with a sensitivity in the face of society's harsh judgment for these women. Yeah. Um, this take on the world's oldest profession is aligned with, with Dylan's take in Dark Eyes that we talked about earlier. Seeing the human being behind the label when so many people only see a nameless object to be used for the pleasure of a man. Yeah. And, and you know, Elton, uh, like Blondie before, uh, before Elton, he had two songs about prostitution. This All Young Girls Love Atlas? Uh, three songs. Okay. <laughs> three songs. I, I wasn't even thinking about Alice. That's, yeah. a, that's another one I wanted to choose. Yeah, Island Girl. Oh, is, Island is Girl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and actually, both of those, uh, Island Girl and uh, all, the, all the Girls Love Alice, I'm, I mean, those have been played live substantially. Yeah. Sweet Painted Lady. No. I mean, it's you can count on one hand the number right. of times he's played it live no, in his Alice career. Alice was on Goodbye, Elbe Crud. Yeah. Yeah, yeah they both are. Island Girl was on Caribou later. Right. Um no, I sweet penny ladies. It's it's, I don't know. It's a great song. I love the goals. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. as the the song fades. Um, yeah, it's just a great. I'll leave the smell of the sea in your bed. There's a lot of imagery in this. Oh, there is. There's a lot of imagery. I could never teach it in my English uh, no. class. <laughs> but uh, not if you want to keep your job. Yeah. Um, no, it's a great song. All right, my last song for side A. Uh, is Lou Reed's 1972 single, Walk on the Wild Side. Holly came from Miami, FLA Hitchhiked away across USA 
Plucked her eyebrows on the way Shaved her legs and then he was a she She says, hey babe Take a walk on the wild side Said, hey honey Take a walk on the wild side Candy came from out on the island she was everybody's darling But she never lost her head Even when she was given head She says, hey babe Take a walk on the wild side Said, hey babe Take a walk on the wild side And the colored girls go do 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 Recorded two years after leaving the Velvet Underground, uh, the track was a rare venture to the pop chart for Reed, who was not known for his singles. Uh, thanks to the Do to Do hook, it is his most accessible song. But it's not out of character in terms of subject matter. Uh, as usual, Reed ventures into the dark corners of city life, this time telling the stories of cross-dressers who come to New York City and become prostitutes. Each verse introduces a new character. There's Holly, Candy, Little Joe, Sugar Plum Fairy, and Jackie. Now, all these characters were actually cronies of the infamous Andy Warhol factory, as was Reed. Reed had an empathy for these characters that comes through in the song, as he struggled with his own sexuality for most of his life. Uh, Reed's parents even tried to cure his homosexuality with conversion therapy when he was young. Um... But with this song, Reed presented a completely different view of gender roles in rock. Little Joe refers to Joe D'Alessandero, who was also one of Warhol's kids in the factory. Uh, He was in several films by Warhol. Sugar Plum Fairy was the nickname of actor Joe Campbell. Holly, Candy, and Jackie are based on Hollywood Lawn, Candy Darling, and Jackie Curtis. They are all real drag queens who appeared in Warhol's 1972 movie, Women in Revolt. Uh, Woodlawn also appeared in, in Warhol's 1970 movie Trash, and Curtis was in Warhol's 1968 movie Flesh. Uh, in interviews, Reed said, I always thought it would be kind of fun to introduce people to characters they may maybe hadn't met before. And he added, or hadn't wanted to meet. Uh, in a 1972 interview uh, with Disc and Music Echo, uh, Reed described this song, though, as an outright gay song saying it was from me to them, but they're carefully worded so the straights can miss out on the implications and enjoy them without being offended. I suppose, though, the album is going to offend some people, is what Reed said. But surprisingly, the song was not banned by U.S. radio stations. And not censored either. No, Um, because the censors didn't understand many of Reed's phrases, including, surprisingly, the line, giving head. Yeah, was that not a common It was not common. At the time? Yeah. Uh, it went mm-hmm. uncensored in 72 because it just wasn't widely known or often used. Interesting. Uh, depending on the regional U.S. market, though, the song was edited for its controversial use of colored girls. Really? They edited that, too? Yeah. That surprises me just simply because this is very much a product of its time. It is, yeah. And while it's seen as an offensive term now... It's not like the N-word. Right. Yeah, it just depends on the market in right. which it was uh, being played on the stations. There was a version... Um, well, well, Reed leads into that fem- into the female vocalist do-to-do hook with the words and the colored girls say. Uh, many radio stations played a version that replaced the phrase with 
and all the girls say. Hmm. Back um, then they did, or that's a more recent no, adjustment? No, even back then. Even back then. Yeah, impressive. even back then. Now, now, David Bowie and Mick Ronson, they produced the track. Uh, both were huge Lou Reed fans and part of the vibrant and transgressive artistic scene in London. That also included photographer Mick Rock. He shot the Transformer album cover. Um, Rock took the photo at one of Reed's shows at King's Cross Cinema in London, which was transformed into a concert venue on Friday and Saturday nights. The sax solo at the end is played by Ronnie Ross, a, a jazz musician who lived near Bowie in England. When David Bowie was 12 years old, he wanted to learn the saxophone and begged Ross to give him lessons, which he eventually did. So when they needed a sax player for this, Bowie made sure Ross was booked for the session, but didn't tell me he'd be there. Ross nailed the solo in one take, and Bowie showed up to surprise his old friend. The female vocalists singing back up on this track were Karen Friedman, Daria Lalu, and, and Casey Singh. Um, in 1974, they recorded as Thunder Thighs and had a UK hit with Central Park Arrest, and then there's that bass line. Hmm. It was played by a session musician named Herbie Flowers. He was paid 17 pounds. And, 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 no, and no royalty credit? No royalty credit and no notoriety. Bad manager. Yeah, very much so. Um, but yeah, this one, I mean, it's such a staple, you know, and it's, I, I to me, it's it's every bit as defining as Roxanne. I, I think that yeah. it just has to be on the Well, this is day. obviously a classic. This is another great song to, to listen to at night when you're driving. Um, to me, Rue Reed is more of a musical photographer. Is that a real thing? Um, he really does. His, his whole career just paints a picture of New York City that most oh, yeah. people didn't see. Well, in his album, New York, yes, is, yes. A, is a great example. I mean, it's, yes. every song is like traveling in and out of the boroughs. Lurie is like having your own spy yeah. in, the, in, in the very difficult um, you know, underground of, the, of New York in the 60s and 70s and, and 80s. And I, that's why I wouldn't mess with this song. Um, <clears throat> you know, even though it does use somewhat of a disparaging term for African-Americans, it's of the time. During yeah. that time, that was common usage. Again, N words. I'm not. That was common usage too, right. oh, yeah, to an yeah. extent. Yeah. But the N word, I don't think, was ever accepted vernacular. The colored was accepted at one point. I mean, even the NAACP um, right. uses that term. And so, to me, it's a product of the time, not meant to, to be uh, offensive. But then you go to the next step. What about like um, Elvis Costello's um, Oliver's Army, mm-hmm. where he mentions uh, a, a white N word. And again, I. I don't listen to classic rock anymore, but I'm just curious to see if, if they've altered that or if they no longer play that song. Because again, classic song. Um, he was simply talking about economically disadvantaged people that were rejected in, in England and using the N-word. Very similar to how um, um, John Lennon in his song, Women Are the N-Words of, of right. the World. Well, and, and, and Well, Lennon uses it too in Working Class Hero. Yeah, yes, so, exactly. I mean, I mean it's, it's very... Yeah. Yeah, pronounced. Yeah. So, so again, all of these were not all these usages were not done um, in a racist context. But right. I also understand today, especially the N word carries a power with it that, as a society, we've understood um, has way too much of a painful um, history to it. But I think you're okay. I think Lou Reed's okay. With, oh yeah, with that. No, I agree. Um, it just um, it just surprised me because I've never heard an altered version yeah, I haven't either. of yeah. the song. Well, I'm always listening to the actual. Right, Record, the album, so, yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, well, I can I can attest. I've, I've heard "Walk on the Wild Side" on classic rock stations in the last 
few years here and there. Um, primarily, I listen to Sirius XM now, but but there was a time before I got serious. I was still listening to it. Before and you got really serious. Before I got yes, <laughs> why so serious? Um, but um, the uh, the song still on the stations that I would listen to anyway. Nothing censored. I mean, it, it still yeah. stands as is, and certainly. They may not have known that phrase in 72, but we know that phrase today. Well, yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, that stands out. That's why, yeah. I've heard it. I, I have heard it on the radio in the last, you know, 15, 20 years where right. they continue to, to use that, and it kind of surprised me on classic rock radio. Um, there's also a reference to the song in one of my favorite movies of all time. Have you seen Beautiful Girls? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, when, you know, Natalie Portman, not to get into the whole plot, great movie if you get a chance to see it. Somewhat problematic in, in some areas. At least my daughter felt so. We had a long discussion about it. Uh, came out in the 90s, late 90s. But Natalie Portman, very young Natalie Portman, probably 13, 14-year-old Natalie Portman. Yeah, um, wasn't long after The Professional. Plays an was, old soul. Yeah, she um, was young. Who really, you know, is a manic pixie dream girl in her own way. Um, and so there's an older character um, in his in his 30s that's just drawn to her personality. Um, <clears throat> this is the part that, you know, how creepy is it that he ends up having these long conversations with this neighbor girl. But... She is so sharp-witted and her use of pop culture, that's what's kind of appealing about this character. And so there's a little scene where Timothy Hutton makes some, some pronouncement and she says, and the color girl sang, do, 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 and she walks off or she skates off. And it's just one of those moments. It's, it, it's a perfect way of taking his statement and, and not responding to a statement. Right. But bringing out this pop culture rev, re, reference that no 12-year-old in, in, in the 90s would have brought out but she does and that's what makes her character so appealing i forgot all about that yeah yeah, yeah. no great movie <laughs> oh all right my turn your turn i'm the last one aren't i yes sir okay well i'm going back to 1956 for this one not quite a gen x staple i was surprised you used this yeah i'm, I'm very happy yeah you used it, yeah but i was not expecting cole porter to show up yes so. and, and i think it's important sometimes and when the gen x mixtape we include songs from other eras oh absolutely um, because it, it's such a part of, of pop culture history i'm going back to 1956 like i mentioned um a song originally written and released uh, in 1930 from the musical The New Yorkers, um, as you mentioned, written by Cole Porter. From um, the, the musical is called Sale for Sale. And if you haven't heard of it, there's a reason for that. It was a complete flop. But um, there was some music um, that survived from the musical, specifically the song Love for Sale. Um, and it, it, it's one of the songs that's been done. It, it's considered a standard Um we have Billie Holiday, Tony Bennett, Miles Davis, or the Kid, Elvis Costello, Katie Lang, Seal, hun- Every, probably hundreds of people. Yeah, everyone's recorded have versions of this song, um, and it, quite simply, it's a song from the perspective of a prostitute um, advertising her sales. And I decided to go with the first lady of song, Miss Ella Fitzgerald's version. When the only sound in the empty street is the heavy tread of the heavy feet. That belongs to a lonesome kind Open shop When the moon so long has been gazing down On the wayward ways of the wayward town her smile becomes a smirk 
When the song was originally released, the press pronounced it as being in poor taste. Probably not. <laughs> in 1930, probably not a uh, surprise. Radio stations refused to play it. Even in the context of the musical, Porter had to change the setting to Harlem and have a black actress sing the number in order to keep the loudest critics at bay. And what does that tell you about exactly. how far we've come? So, I'm sorry. For me, Ella could simply sing the phone book and I would buy it. Oh, oh yeah. And here she takes Porter's classic and makes it something really, really special, as she always does. So now, Alan, I know you are the jazz expert of the duo here. But from my novice position, there's no better jazz vocalist than Ella Fitzgerald. Her sharp tones, her fluid runs, the precise enunciation that makes her sound modern, even to the most reluctant listener of old recordings. If you play Ella to somebody, it doesn't sound like it was released in 1956. Yeah, She just has a control over her vocal that's more common today with modern you know, singers, um, and, and and just the slightest little twinge in her voice, she could just change the way you were feeling. Mm-hmm. She had more control over that instrument than than most people will ever dream. Right? Yeah. Now Ella is, I think, well, she she is. She's the greatest female vocalist in the history of jazz music. Billie Holiday. Oh, she's great. Comes. Yeah, I don't close. want to take anything away. No, from I'm not taking anything away from from Billie. I mean, Billie kind of started it all you know and billy was best known for her her timing right she was always a step behind right (laughs) uh which which is very common in jazz jazz very rarely do vocalists sing on the beat sure they fall back or they they come forward uh but ella ella just had such poise and and she had just such such grace you know there was nothing she could sing that did not turn into a masterpiece oh, that's great and she could scat yeah oh, yeah I mean, she introduced I, I shouldn't say she introduced that was probably louis armstrong that introduced scat but um but nonetheless ella and louis of course they paired mm-hmm. paired up and had you know i think three or four um collaborations um yeah no it, it doesn't get any better than ella fitzgerald her version and this is another controversial song for the day um, her version of uh, Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered. Oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, one of my favorite recording tracks of all time. I mean, that's and it, it, incredible. It gets, yeah. <laughs> she adds verses that the others leave out. Um, right, right. I mean, Sinatra did not go there. <laughs> right. We'll, we'll she leave did. It, she did. We'll leave it at there. Ella, Ella was, I mean, she was bold. Yes. Um, and, but I think, too, she was so respected and so loved. And she crossed the, the racial barrier um, as as well as could be expected sure. at, at the time, that she really could get away with almost anything, you know. Um, and it, it's I think it's it's a testimony to just her her brilliance. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was and forever will be the first lady of song, like you said. And you asked me on our last episode my favorite Christmas album, and I said um, "Bare Naked for the Holidays" by Bare Naked Ladies, which I stand by that being one of one of my favorites, but. After I gave it more thought and, and started listening to Christmas music uh, the last couple of weeks, I think um, um, Ella's, I think it was 1965, Swingin' for Christmas, I think is the name of it. Yeah. 
or something similar to that. That may be my favorite. Hmm. That may be my favorite. Yep. No, I, I love, it has her version of Slay Ride on it, which yeah. is incredible. I love, do love me some Ella. Yep. So, all right. Well, that's all for side A. Yeah. Yeah. Anything you want to add? Um, just a shout out to our sponsor, Jay Callahan Painting. Um, it is probably too late now for any outdoor painting. Uh, paint jobs that you may need but uh if you have need for painting inside uh definitely look her up or wait until summer and you know ask her to come out and paint the exterior she does an amazing job good friend of both of ours let her know that david now sent you it's called ella wishes you a swinging christmas that's, that's what yeah 1960 boy that's just that's just so good yeah that'd be a desert island uh recording for me so I'd have a Christmas re- that's what I would choose as my Christmas really record. yeah no it's it's it, it's definitely up there um like I said I think on that episode for me it's it's always gonna be Phil Spector's oh yeah you know? no yeah and that's um, in my top five yeah too. um but no Ella Ella is definitely top five uh, always so all right well next week you uh, have promised to have songs that are that are a little more uh, well known. I I have a couple male prostitutes. Don't think that we've neglected um, the other sex here because we'll be talking about that side of the profession um, in two weeks. Yes, sir. All right. Here we go. So um, I'm still going to read it because I'm afraid I'm always going to get it wrong. <laughs> that's okay. I get it wrong all well, the time. Well, that's all for this time. Hot funk, cool punk, even if it's old junk. Another mix of memories awaits in two weeks. But for now, press pause, lift the needle, and hit eject. We will see you on the flip side. Sitting in a box undigified Gonna rewind and give them one more try Think about the days of lo-fi Mixtape Memorex and TDK Getting music out there the old-fashioned way Making the greatest hits of one day Mixtape Phonograph and dual cassette Before you could get everything on the internet But some things ain't made it there yet Mixtape Line in, line out, if you don't have a line Hold the recorder to the speaker, turn the volume to nine There's an accidental slice of time
Driving real late, Delta 88 45 on a side, then I'm through the state No iPod shuffle, you know your fate Mixtape Compiled by a friend, amateur DJing With no concern for what format's playing It was more about what the songs were saying Mixtape Got some Merle Haggard and old George Jones Someone yelling in the background I thought I heard a phone But it's nice when you're all alone To have a mixtape Line in, line out If you don't have a line Hold the recorder to the speaker Turn the volume to nine There's an echo 